You're listening to The Rush, sports and entertainment law stories presented by the Drexel University Thomas R. Klein School of Law, Sports and Entertainment Law Society. I'm your host, Louis Sorokin. On this first episode of the show, we bring you our conversation with Cassie McBride, General Counsel for the Jacksonville Jaguars and All Elite Wrestling. We got on Zoom this morning with Cassie and had a wonderful conversation about her experience as general counsel in professional football and professional wrestling and how she got where she is. So without further ado, here's the conversation. Uh, Thank you all for joining us today. We're very excited for this presentation. Um, I'm joined today alongside my two co-hosts. Hi, I'm Ainsley Rhodes. I'm a 2L and I am the treasurer of the Sports Entertainment Law Society and I'm also on the podcast committee as well. Hi, I'm Vinny Samhadri. I am a 1L and I sit on the podcast committee. And I'm so excited to be hosting uh, our esteemed guests today alongside the two of them. Uh, we're welcoming today Cassie McBride. At only age 26, Cassie became the youngest attorney to serve as general counsel for a professional football team. Now in her seventh season with the Jacksonville Jaguars, Cassie has the responsibility for the team's legal operations, manages transactions, risk management, and compliance for the team and affiliate ventures. Together with the team's chief legal officer, Cassie has established a dynamic legal department that embraces the millennial culture and was recognized by the Daily Business Review as a 2016 Rising Star recipient. In addition to her work with the Jaguars, Cassie also serves as general counsel for All Elite Wrestling, Bold Events, and True Media Networks. Cassie received her JD from California Western School of Law and a bachelor's degree in journalism and history and political science from Rutgers University. Cassie was named California Western's Rising Star for 2018. She was also a founding chairperson of the Social Media Subcommittee for the Association of Corporate Counsel Sports and Entertainment Network. Cassie also serves as a founding member of the YMCA Blue Ridge Leaders School Tech Council, where she volunteers her time developing technology strategy and leadership curriculum for an annual team leadership conference. In her free time, Cassie enjoys spending time with her husband, Danny, and their dog, George. Her full bio can be found on her website, CassieMcBride.com. Cassie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Of course. So we'd love to get started uh, by just learning a little bit about who you are and how you got where you are. Um, So did you always know you wanted to go into entertainment law and sports law, or was that kind of just something that happened along the way for you? Yeah, no, I actually had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, Even, you know, prior to law school, I was sort of hesitant to make the commitment. At the time, we were just coming out of a recession. I was working in the media industry for a little bit. So I had, you know, throughout undergrad, a whole host of different internships at Fox News and CNN. So for a while, I thought that I would actually stay on the media path. Um, I also have a background in web design and development. So I definitely was not exploring like a career in sports or in entertainment law at all. And then when I made the decision to go to law school, it was during my second year um, where, you know, I had to start looking for legal internships and I didn't really have a desire to go into the public sector, didn't really, you know, want to go into the big law space, right, or like specialize in any one particular area. So I started to research different opportunities or different career paths for the in-house track. Um, And it was during that second year of law school where I linked up with the general counsel of the angels um, over LinkedIn. I just sent him a message. I said, hey, here's my website. I'm looking for an internship. You know, do you have anything? And from there, we were able to, you know, build a great rapport. He brought me on as a legal intern in 2012. Um, And then shortly after that, you know, I was graduating and he accepted the general counsel position at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So he was able to actually bring me on directly in house after I graduated law school. So it's somewhat of an unconventional career path. Um, I didn't really expect that I would land in the NFL upon graduation at all. 
Um, but I'm very fortunate for sort of those relationships that I built along the way and the support system that ultimately um, allowed me to start off my career in sports. That's so interesting, especially hearing about your time with the Buccaneers. Of course, they're going to the Super Bowl this weekend, so that must be a bit uh, bit nice for you, uh, being able yeah. to see your old team make it all the way there. Um, so tell us a little bit more about what it's like on the day-to-day. So working in the front office on the legal team, um, just what is that like? So I'll start by saying that no two days are the same, right? We are so busy all the time. We're doing a million different things. We have a lot of different business segments within the organization to support. Um, So that I think keeps it fresh and exciting in some ways. What's also pretty interesting about um, our current ownership structure is that we support not just the NFL team, right? So the Jaguars both in Jacksonville and our full-time presence in London, but we also have a host of other sports and entertainment um, properties that we manage the legal for. So that includes Bold Events, um, which I think you mentioned in the bio, which is our concert company. We recently built the Daily's Place Amphitheater, which is adjacent to our stadium in downtown Jacksonville. So we partner with Live Nation, we bring concerts in. Um, We have our pro wrestling startup, All Elite Wrestling, which launched two years ago. Um, So we manage, you know, again, all the legal um, for that organization and, you know, they're on TV every week. They have a lot of different wrestlers and talent coming in and out. And so it's very transaction heavy. Um, and then we have a scouting analytics platform company that we do all the licensing for. So we're really you know, spread out in terms of the breadth of the work that we do. Um, and as a result of that, you know, obviously each business has their own cycle, right? So the NFL season right now, we are, well, we are in the off season. Some are in the postseason. Um, So for us, it's a lot of planning, obviously, for anyone that's paying attention, we just hired a new head coach, we are, you know, gearing up and putting in our new coaching staff or our scouting staff, um, gearing up for the draft that's about to to be here before we know it. Um, And so there's just a lot of planning that happens at this time in the NFL season, right? And then as we sort of move through free agency, move through training camp, and then ultimately until the start of the season, our workload sort of shifts depending on where we are at the time of year. Add wrestling on top of that, which has no season and no real structure to the to the year, and it's just busy year round, right? So it's a lot of sort of balancing the competing priorities of each of the different organizations, um, and you know making sure that you're accountable to you know the departments that you're servicing, right? Because ultimately, when you're an in-house lawyer, your job is to support revenue generating departments, right? And make sure that the contracts are getting signed and make sure that you're mitigating risk for the company and not putting, setting up the company um, to be in a bad position or potentially expose them to different liabilities. So you have to sort of take all of these considerations and then sort of balance them depending on you know where you are um, either in the season or in the off season and then um, respond accordingly. So. Going back to your original question, it's impossible for me to say every day is the same and here's how I start my day because we just have so much volume that sort of dictates what the priority of the day is going to be. That's so interesting. And so I want to ask a little bit more about, you talked about the different entities and the different companies uh, and sort of the different ways that each of them um, add to your plate. Um, Are there some, I would imagine some days are more focused on uh, certain properties than others and certain of the the companies. Um, What are the differences between how those different parts of your season tend to run? Yeah, so I would say, you know, what's interesting is, so obviously the season, unfortunately, last season didn't go as planned, right, on the field wise. 
Um, so we knew sort of going into 2021 that this time this year, whereas we typically would reserve this time for planning, um, doing some trainings for our internal employees in different departments, um, we knew that it was actually going to be completely overtaken by coaching and football contracts, right? Because now we're building out a staff, everybody moves really quickly. We really want to move to get the coaches in place, get the personnel in place, um, and set ourselves up for success as we progress, you know, through the free agency and, and the draft and everything else. So, um, you know, you sort of have to have this adaptable mindset, right? Like in this role, it pays to be flexible. You have to be able to see what's coming down the pipe and be able to adjust as necessary. So some of the other things that we typically would do this time of year have to unfortunately just take a back seat, right? Um, with wrestling, it's been interesting because since COVID started, um, typically the way that wrestling works is that we have a weekly TV show every Wednesday on TNT. Feel free to tune in, 8 p.m. Um, and it's, it's basically live every, just about every single week. And so when COVID hit, you know, you have to ultimately suspend your touring operations, right? They film every week in a different city, a different arena, different venue. Um, but fortunately we were able to actually have the wrestling show be produced and operated out of our amphitheater, which again is adjacent to the stadium. So it's right on site with where our offices are, where the stadium is, um, so we're able to sort of leverage these different um, opportunities or resources that we have across the portfolio to make sure that the businesses are continuing to operate, continuing to generate revenue, even through the toughest times, right? With a, a very volatile year like last, last year, right? So since May of last year, wrestling has basically been operating full time out of our venue. And as a result of that, um, you know, there's a little bit more of a demand, right? Because now we're on site, we have a little bit more access to what the operations, you know, are and what the needs are. And so we've been pretty inundated with a lot of the different transaction requests and facility-related needs um, as it relates to wrestling, which typically we wouldn't necessarily have if they were off touring elsewhere, right? So again, sort of going back to this theme of like, Okay, well, now we have to figure out like we have all the stuff happening on the football side. They're now, we have new coaches in the building, we're in the facility. We also have wrestling on site. Like, how can we balance sort of the needs of both of those entities? Uh, and it's challenging, but it's also fun. And I think in some ways it's like an exciting, um, just, it's like a different type of uh, rhythm to your day, ultimately. That's great. And, and we're going to get a little bit more um, into the, the synergy between the different properties later on in the talk. Yeah. Uh, but right now I want to pass it over to uh, Ainsley and Vinny to talk a little bit about your experience um, as a woman in sports law. Hi, Cassie. Um, so the sports industry is generally very male dominated. Um, what qualities have you found best lead you to your success of being a woman in sports? So for me, I've always tried to just focus on my work product and not necessarily um, highlight or, or showcase the fact that, you know, my, I'm a woman or I'm a female in sports. Like we all know that sports is, has traditionally been very male dominated, right? Like everyone knows that. Um, there's been tremendous breakthroughs over the past couple of years, right? We have female officials, we have female coaches, we have female scouts, we have um, just the number of females in the room. Like I remember when I first started at the Bucks and we would go to our league meetings um, you know, which is all just the team general counsel, the NFL legal, we'd all get together, we brainstorm, we have like a summit type situation. Um, you know, I was one of very few women in the room and this was what, seven, eight years ago. Um, and I remember sort of thinking like, man, like 
there's not a lot of females around here, right? It does seem like there's kind of this very overt, you know, male presence in the room. And then fast forward now, again, seven or eight years, and when we go to have these meetings, it's just, it's so incredible to see how many women are actually in these legal roles and prominent roles. Um, and especially like in the C-suite and the executive leadership team of, um, you know, these powerful sports franchises, right? And I think the progress that we've made both, you know, within the NFL, but then also just in, as an industry on the whole, um, there's a lot to um, celebrate there. And I think that we have a lot more work to do for sure, but with, you know, by partnering with diversity and inclusion organizations and really making um, diversity efforts a priority, I think you're starting to see a little bit of a shift in a positive direction. Um, and so it's been kind of cool to be part of that, you know, as the, the league and as pro sports sort of evolve um, in that sense. What is an obstacle that you've had to overcome since being in the sports industry that maybe a male counterpart hasn't encountered? So, okay, so generally in terms of, you know, the basic obstacles, I think a lot of times we immediately think about, you know, unconscious biases that may take place like in the boardroom, right? When you're having meetings, the way that your male counterparts sort of approach you or your ideas. Um, so, you know, there's definitely been instances for sure where, you know, maybe I'm interacting with some lawyers or vendors who are a little bit more old school or traditional, right? And who are a little bit less progressive in their, their thought process or their approach to, to the law. Um, and so sometimes, you know, people can come across as like a little condescending or put you down or like feel like maybe your ideas aren't as significant, um, maybe because they're just viewing you as, you know, young. I mean, for me, the age piece has always been um, a little bit more challenging than the gender piece. Um, so for me, I think, you know, a lot of times people look at me and they're like, are you sure you're general counsel for an NFL team? You know, like we actually, we have our whole legal team. We're made up of, um, four women. We're all relatively young in age. Um, and we are constantly like, if we're, if we're wearing like Jag gear in the airport, people will come up to us and just assume we're cheerleaders. Like it is what it is. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with being a cheerleader, right? But just that assumption that people are so quick to jump to, right? Um, it's it's just very eye-opening, you know? And so it's made us actually as a team a little bit stronger too, because we've been able to sort of take those experiences and then talk about them and have candid conversations among our staff to help train them on certain things like unconscious bias and you know, inclusivity. Um, we recently at the Jags launched a diversity engagement network um, for all of our employees just to try and raise you know, more awareness to some of these issues, um, you know, in, in terms of gender bias. So it's definitely, like I said earlier, it's something that we need to focus on. And while there's not any one particular issue or roadblock that I, I face, it's more of just like the common theme of, yes, we need to address these issues. We need to keep talking about them. They're important. Um, and we'll see progress along the way for sure. I think that's a great point with what you say with progress and you know, in 2020, we witnessed history with Sarah Fuller um, being the first female football player to play in an, S uh, an SEC game. Uh, and then we also, and also the first female to score points. So that was kind of a big kind of movement within, within sports. And so for those of you who don't know, Sarah Fuller is a D1 soccer goalkeeper at Vanderbilt and ended up kicking for Vanderbilt's football team this season. And she kicked a few extra points and it basically blew up all over the internet um, in both good and bad controversy. But overall, it inspired many when it comes to gender equity in sports. 
So in general, what effect do you think this has on the next generation? And do you think that we will see more girls and women playing football in the future? And, you know, do you think one day we will see women in more women in college football or, or even in the NFL? Yeah, I think it's, it's certainly a possibility, right? I think we've seen that. I think um, Sarah Fuller has definitely taken things to a different level, right, last year, um, which has been exciting to see. I think that the presence of the level of increased interest in sort of women who want to be officials or coaches or scouting or get more involved like on the football side, right, which is, again, traditionally very male-dominated, um, more so than the business side, front office staff. Um, so there's generally, I think, a, a strong interest there. Um, we were also starting to see, you know, more females and young girls want to take part in things like Pop Warner, right? Um, and there's a lot more like co-ed type of organizations and youth sports that are coming together now. So it's going to be really interesting, I think, to see what happens and how this all unfolds over the next couple of years. I think young women and young men are inspired by what the females are doing um, on and off the field, which I think goes a long way. Um, so I'm excited to, to sort of follow the progress and see, you know, what, what the landscape looks like, right? And of course, there are things that, you know, you're going to have to solve for that maybe you never had to before, which is perfectly normal, right? So locker rooms, for example, right? You have to be able to provide an equal space for a female official versus a male official, right? And thinking through some of these equitable um, accommodations that you need to make. Um, I mean, this is just sort of par for the course, right? And if you don't start thinking about those changes and, and ways to, you know, drive equality, um, you're going to be stuck in the past, right? And so you want to make sure that you're moving forward. You want to make sure that the younger generations are inspired and encouraged. Um, and I'm excited to see, see what happens. Yeah, I definitely think, you know, from a different generation, I grew up in the Mia Hamm era. So for me, that was kind of the big mo movement in soccer that got a lot of younger girls playing soccer. And now we're seeing obviously this huge uptick and look at our, our national team and just the, the participation in college athletics and, um, and youth sports. So I definitely kind of see maybe that potentially happening if we continue to have people like Sarah Fuller continuing to kind of push those glass ceilings and those gender norms. Absolutely. Uh, so what are some of the things that as a legal community or a sports community we can do to grow the representation of women in this industry? I think definitely being an advocate goes a long way. I think advocating for your women colleagues, um, you know, making sure that you're supportive, you're sort of promoting an environment that is, uh, look, law school is competitive, right? The legal community is competitive. It's also very oversaturated right now. Like there's a ton of lawyers, especially in sports and entertainment. Everybody wants to, you know, go work for a team or like have the, the glamorous job, right? So we, we sort of know going into this industry that it's very competitive. But there are certain things that you can do to help support and promote women um, and just gender equality in, in the workplace in general, right? I think making sure that you're sort of going out of your way to check your own biases in your conversations, um, obviously during interviews or as you're recruiting, paying attention to some of the headlines on diversity and inclusion and you know everything from sexual harassment and what's been happening there and sort of the cultural norms that are shifting over time. I think having a deeper understanding of a lot of that will go a long way. It makes you a more sensitive person. It makes you um, in tune with some of these issues that are so critical, right? That you're gonna experience once you graduate law school and end up in the workforce, right? So just sort of keeping an open mind, I think goes a long way. Um, and then, you know, pay it forward, right? So I actually, my associate counsel um, who's been with us now for four, almost five years, 
you know, she, I knew her from law school and she had great experience by the time we were hiring. And I said, you know what, like she'd be a perfect fit for what we're looking for. So I added her to, to our team um, and it's been great, you know? And so having people who are sort of, you know, like-minded in that sense, in terms of being open to diversity and inclusion and, you know, wanting to sort of help be an advocate and support other women, there's going to be a ton of opportunities along the way. Um, regardless of your gender or whether you're male, female, whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, just being, you know, an advocate and someone who can support and actively support will go a long way. I think that's a great point that sometimes we overlook kind of the advocacy portion and what we can do to better foster that kind of environment that we would want to work in. Right. And I think a lot of people on this call who are looking for jobs right now are kind of thinking about that kind of environment that they want. And um, I think you posed a lot of great great points for people to consider or maybe ask about when they're on their interviews of what kind of culture maybe their workplace that they're looking into uh, currently fosters. Yeah, and culture is huge. So don't be afraid to ask those questions in your interviews, right? I think a lot of times like we get said, you know, especially like if you're going through, you know, the typical process for, you know, law firm recruiting and whatnot, it can be a, a very rigid process at times. Don't be afraid to sort of, you know, actually ask the, the tough questions, right? Ask about culture, ask about work-life balance, ask about what they do in terms of their diversity and inclusion of programs. Um, there's also um, a legal um, uh, partnership that we have through Diversity Lab. So if you look up Diversity Lab, um, they partner with a whole bunch of different law firms and in-house organizations to really help promote um, diversity and inclusion, specifically as it relates to hiring in the legal community. And that includes law students and internships and full-time roles, part-time roles. And so some of the things that they're doing are also really relevant and interesting. Um, and if nothing more, maybe just a little bit of an education, you know, as you're sort of going through your interview process and what to look for and what to ask. And I think that's a great segue. Lewis and I kind of want to ask you about some questions that are more specific towards your role at the Jaguars. But for those of us who are kind of in the process of taking classes and figuring out what our next step is in terms of experience, what experiences or classes throughout your law career has best prepared you for your job with the Jags? And what advice maybe do you have for law students like us who aspire to hopefully be in your shoes one day? Yeah, so on the classes, um, you know, the good thing about my role is that I'm a true generalist, right? General counsel, you are not expected to be a subject matter expert by any means. So in that sense, it's actually great because you have full flexibility. Take classes that interest you, right? Like that's number one. Um, things like IP classes, copyright, trademarks, all of that will be relevant. Um, just having a basic understanding of, you know, business law um, or business associations. Um, and then there's other things like if you're interested in like bankruptcy, go for it, right? Because believe it or not, we have to deal with certain, you know, creditors and whatnot um, and, you know, maybe sponsors that don't pay their bill or, or different entities or vendors that go into bankruptcy. So like, it's just, I'm, I'm using that as an example to say that, you know, in this role, you can actually find a whole bunch of different subject matters that are actually directly relevant to some of the stuff that I do on a daily basis, right? You're really interested in, you know, workers' comp litigation. Well, every time a player gets injured, it's workers' comp, right? So we have to, you know, be somewhat familiar with um, player health and safety policy and obviously labor and employment and HIPAA and medical records, right? So, you know, don't, don't focus too much on, you know, oh, I want to go, I need to take sports law because that's the path I want to take. Obviously that's helpful, but you'll actually be a little bit more well-rounded if you're able to take sort of the core courses, right? So your contracts, 
crim law, um, ADR or negotiations, right? Once you have those skills, just focus on what interests you. I took a lot of um, social media law, cyberspace law, like think, I think I took sexuality in the law, immigration law, which actually immigration law has been like wildly helpful for um, the wrestling side of the business. So you just never know, you know, how things will ultimately play out or what will be relevant uh, later on. So focus a little bit less on, I have to take this set of courses in order to pursue this career track and just keep an open mind about how you can make it relevant once you are um, on the hunt for a job. I think that's so interesting to hear, especially just how well-rounded and well-versed someone in your position has to be. Um, it makes a lot of sense when you really think about what the job entails, especially when you were talking about some of the differences that have come up that um, some of your classes like the immigration have, yeah. have really prepared you for, specifically uh, in terms of challenges from COVID-19, um, which I'm sure the immigration was related to. Um, what other pandemic-related issues and um, sort of obstacles have come up along the way, um, at least on the Jaguar side? Yeah, so it's been um, very interesting. Um, we've had a lot of sort of, you know, planning that we did throughout the earlier 2020 that ultimately we just had to pivot or change course um, and sort of, again, be flexible and adapt and modify, you know, sort of what we were doing moving forward as we prepared to um, open the season. And so in a lot of ways, we learned so much about just the importance of being flexible, right? Um, so, you know, there's definitely your core, like football related issues, right? Like salary cap and labor implications that you have to work with. And you obviously work with them, you know, with the league. Um, and then there's some like operational facility related challenges, right? How are you going to let people in the building? Um, you know, everyone has to wear a mask. What do these protocols look like in the office? Can we keep everybody working remote? Are we going to do hybrid schedules? Like what's the proper protocol? There's a tremendous amount of you know, government related um, policy that you need to think about, right? So like, if you're looking at the NFL, so we'll just focus on the NFL for now. If you look at the NFL, there's 32 teams in 32 different jurisdictions, right? The Northeast teams could not have fans since day one in their building. Whereas Florida could have fans. We could have had up to 100% capacity if we really wanted to, right? And so you have to think about, you know, sort of the differences that may also implicate, you know, the, the league on the whole, right? Because you don't necessarily want to say, okay, well, if you're in Florida, you can open the full capacity, you can have whatever, you know, but if you're like in a different, you know, jurisdiction that's really on lockdown because the COVID cases are spiking, you guys have to work remote, right? So like you have, you want to work through and be a partner with your other teams, your fellow colleagues, with the league just to put the policies in place that actually make sense, right? And then of course, with that comes a lot of testing protocols and whatnot, which, you know, everybody's sort of, um, I'm sure you've all have read sort of evolution of like what happened with the NBA and then the bubble and then the MLB. And then finally we got to our season and, and knock on wood, it was, we actually were able to play out the season, you know? Um, and so, yeah, it's definitely the heavy lift for sure. Just making sure that the facility was right. We integrated new technologies into the stadium, obviously to like go cashless and the mask protocols and all sorts of things like that. Um, but, you know, I think we definitely had some key learnings. And now as we prepare for 2021 and what this season is going to look like, you know, we sort of are going into it with that knowledge of, okay, here's how we can plan, here's how we can do it safely um, and equitably. And, you know, I think that just it, it makes a world of difference once you've already been through it. 
And so obviously, like you've said, there's been so many difficulties and changes that you, you've really had to run with this season with COVID. So when it comes to sponsorships or if there's games that have been rescheduled or sponsors are expecting fans to be in the stands or sponsors expect a certain amount of, of coverage and maybe a game gets rescheduled, how does that kind of implicate your department and what kind of contractual obligations might be difficult there? Yeah, so I think, you know, it's definitely come up, right? Because, you know, you're going to have sponsors who are going to say, hey, like I was promised, you know, 10 home games worth of exposure, but now I'm only getting this amount or like, I, you know, with the reduced capacity, maybe, you know, I'm not um, really seeing the value of what I'm spending, right, for the full year. And so what we always try to do is work with each partner on an individualized basis, basis, and we try to come up with a series or a slate of alternative benefits that they can receive that ultimately make up that difference, right, for what they feel is like the lost value. And that's been working very well. Um, I think you're also going to run into issues with, you know, just more localized or smaller partners who just are, are having tough times, right? Like just like everyone else, like all businesses took a hit to some extent, right? Um, throughout this experience. And so, you know, just sort of being able to be collaborative, be flexible, work with each sponsor. Um, and then of course, you know, it, we'd amend the deal if we need to, or, you know, however we need to memorialize it. You know, that's what my team steps in and, and helps with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's helpful to sort of be creative as you're thinking through alternative strategies, um, you know, to, to work with your sponsors, your ticketing partners, um, all of it. And just a quick follow-up to that, you know, you, you mentioned that you've had to kind of create multiple contingency plans. So as we kind of go into this uncertainty where we might have vaccines, we might not, we, we have more testing, we don't, you know, do you find yourself and your, the rest of your department having to create multiple different plans so that way you have it? Or do you kind of have one plan that you're like, all right, we can roll with it from here? It sort of depends, right? I mean, I would say, you know, you always want to sort of start with where, where you've come so far, right? So like what last year looked like, but it's, you know, it's a bigger conversation. It's not necessarily just even up to the team, right? The NFL ultimately has to, you know, come in and the players union has to agree on certain things. And so it's one of those things where like, unfortunately I don't have a great answer. The answer is TBD, right? Like we have to see how it goes. And I think that that's what a lot of teams, a lot of just sports and entertainment companies in general are doing. It's, it's a little bit of, I want to be proactive, but not too proactive. And we kind of do just have to take a wait and see approach just given where we are. Um, in the, well, for us, the off season, for everyone else next week, the off season, so. I think that's so interesting to hear. It really sounds like everything um, is very organizational dependent, you know, different teams and different franchises just have different problems and things that come up. Um, and so speaking of that, I want to transition a little bit into talking about some of the other properties. But to do that, I want to sort of ask you, what is the synergy like between the different companies? So the Jaguars, AEW, Bold Events, obviously common ownership and common locale. Um, so what does that look like really, um, as far as the organizations kind of pooling their resources? Yeah. So it's been, um, it's been pretty great actually through COVID and through this experience to be able to see how we can leverage certain resources that we have either through the, um, Jaguar side or the bold event side, you know, and help wrestling, get wrestling up and running. Um, and so, you know, we have an incredible staff and an incredible team that sort of works hard, you know, to support overall the, the con portfolio of businesses. And I think when everybody's sort of bought in and has that common mission, understanding of what the mission is and what the goals are, I think that goes a long way. Um, so it's a very collaborative culture. 
Um, you know, we as a legal department obviously are a little bit more in the weeds, I would say, in terms of just what the actual needs are for each of the entities. Um, and so being able to, again, prioritize who needs what, um, but even just the fact that, you know, wrestling was able to come to Daly's place um, and really sort of make it its home for several months um, and have a, a home base. I think that just, you know, it speaks volume that we're allowed, we're being flexible. We are working with our um, local government to make sure everything is safe and productive and we have our proper testing protocols. And so there's definitely a lot of synergies there in terms of, you know, being able to think about some of the things that we've been doing successfully with the Jaguars and then applying it to wrestling and then vice versa as well. That's so fascinating to hear about. And as you talked about with the con portfolio of, of uh, companies, it seems like there's obviously some common values, some common staff, and just overall this common environment that each of these companies are doing everything they can to help each one operate in the best way they can. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's really fascinating to hear. Um, and of course, next off, uh, Vinny and I want to ask you some questions um, specifically about AEW. Um, and so just to sort of start off with that, um, AEW has become known um, in the wrestling world for having a very particular uh, company culture. You talked a little bit about the culture um, of different law firms and things like that, but tell us a little bit more about um, really what AEW, especially as a startup wrestling company in the past year and a half or so, um, has done to kind of foster um, the environment that it has. Yeah, and you know, wrestling is interesting because when we launched AEW, I I, I wasn't really a huge wrestling fan before um, this. So like, I didn't know really what to expect. And I knew obviously it was much different than sort of the, um, the Jaguars and the NFL, um, but it's been a very quick learning curve for me. So I, you know, I came into this and, and really, um, it, it was an interesting opportunity for us just in general to be able to sort of build this organization from the ground up. And we had an incredible team um, at the Jags, you know, outside of the Jags that really helped put this together. Um, you know, AEW success is really a testament to all the hard work that, you know, our talent and our, our um, folks behind the scenes are, are putting together. And it's just been really interesting to watch and see, like, obviously we had the TV deal done. Um, the show is doing great. Um, you know, we have our, our YouTube show as well. We have a handful of international talent that's coming. Um, overseas to participate. And so I think the content is is on point at, the, at this stage. Um, and, you know, it's been really interesting just trying to sort of get a really understa good understanding of what can we do to sort of promote that same type of collaborative and engaging culture that we have at the Jets, right? And so, you know, we've done things like, you know, all team meetings for the talent, we do trainings, we have a direct presence like with the talent and we work with them on sort of what their needs are. Um, and so I think being able to roll out certain programs like that and like educational programs and, and being there as a resource just really goes a long way. Um, and I think the same is true regardless of whether it's wrestling or football or any of the other or concerts or any of the other businesses that we have. It's all about just sort of finding um, that, that correct, that right, um, cultural fit, you know, where everybody feels comfortable, like it's a safe family environment. And I think that's really what we've built over the past two years. Absolutely. And I just want to follow that up very uh, briefly. There have been so many stories about AEW as a family, especially in recent months. Yeah. Um, of course, with the news back in December of Brody Lee's passing, there was quite a bit of news of just how the company really came together to support yeah. uh, the Huber family. 
Um, so I just think that's great for our audience to hear about um, as far as the culture of, of truly being um, this unified uh, network of people. Um, so that's just some incredible stuff. Yeah. I don't know if Vinny has another question. Yeah. So um, one of the most hotly discussed legal areas of discussion in wrestling is the independent contractor versus employee distinction. What is AEW doing differently than the status quo in this regard? So, I mean, yeah, the, the statuses are always, you know, sort of a talking point. At the end of the day, it just comes back to, you know, sort of, again, that culture and what you're creating for, um, you know, the wrestlers and your employees and the people behind the scenes and your vendors and basically anyone that's on site, right? And you want to make sure that you're creating a healthy and collaborative environment for everybody. Um, and so we've sort of just taken that approach, right? So regardless of your particular status within the company, we want to make sure that you are, you know, treated fairly and equitably and you have access to certain resources and so that's you know I think the approach that ultimately works and that's what we've been doing and you know Lewis mentioned that there's been a lot of you know press and just sort of this understanding that AEW has this family type dynamic and family environment and that's really what we focus on. And I think that ultimately speaks to what you were talking about earlier with just making sure that the place you're going into, whether it's on an interview with a firm or with a team yeah. or any kind of in-house organization has an environment that is right for the individual. And so the next thing I want to ask you about really is sort of specific to AEW. You talked a little bit about some of the talent coming uh, from other organizations. Recently, especially fans of the programs will know that there have been quite an uptick in cross-promotional work with Impact Wrestling, New Japan Pro Wrestling recently, um, and of course, NWA and AAA much before that. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about how AEW looks at talent sharing very broadly. Yeah, so, you know, talent sharing in general, you know, is, is one of those things where depending on what your creative direction is for the content, you can do a lot. There's a lot of opportunity there, right? And so, you know, I'm not necessarily the one negotiating, like, the talent share and who's coming in and who's doing what. I sort of leave all of that to our creative team and, and sort of the visionaries behind, um, you know, who puts our show together and why it's such a success. Um, but there's definitely value to be had in collaboration. And I think we've all spoken about that today, like throughout this hour, is that collaboration is key. And so to the extent that it makes sense, you know, for storylines, for our wrestling promotion, for a different wrestling promotion, to be able to have those synergies there, um, you know, why not take advantage of that, right? If it makes sense and, you know, everybody's on board, I think that, you know, there's definitely some new creative opportunities to be capitalized on. And so that's like a little bit of what you've been seeing, you know, with Impact and, and some of the other programming that we've put out. Um, I guess New Japan was this week on Wednesday. So I can tell that you, uh, you're up to date on, on your TV show. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's been really exciting. You know, we're always happy to, to be open and collaborative where it makes sense. Um, and, you know, again, it just sort of speaks to the spirit of our organization. Absolutely. And speaking of which, one of the um, topics that always comes up when it comes to cross-promotional work is the intellectual property issues. Um, and that's really something that kind of uh, pervades through the entire wrestling uh, business. So tell us a little bit more just from your perspective. Um, as general counsel, you talked about, obviously, the copyright and trademark work that sometimes comes up. Uh, yeah. But what really is the significance of IP to your work and to, to this, uh, this business? So IP in general, you know, it's really important to make sure that you are registering your rights to ownership, right? And, and um, making sure that you have a robust registration so that you can say, hey, I actually own the rights to this mark. 
And then on the flip side, right, you have to be able to enforce the rights, right? So you need to make sure that there isn't an unauthorized use of marks being exploited in the marketplace such that it's potentially taking away revenue opportunities from your business, right? Because if you own the brand, there's a lot of goodwill attached to that. So in general, um, IP registration is just very technical. Um, typically, you know, we work with a handful of IP firms that sort of help us with running searches and, and actually doing the filings and the statement of use. So it's, it's just a very technical process to be able to actually register it. Um, and of course, you have to think about registration and protections here in the United States, but then also internationally, depending on your activities. Um, and then on the enforcement side, of course, you're always going to see things like, you know, oh, the cease and desist went out because, you know, this person is running a promotion using AEW marks or they're trying to sell counterfeit merch or something like that, right? So there's a lot of sort of issues just in general, not even just exclusive to AEW or wrestling, but also at the Jags across the NFL. Obviously the NFL, you know, there's a handful of different IP related matters that come up from time to time. Um, and so, yeah, we, we get to, to sort of work and help strategize some of the responses. Um, but IP is, is definitely a big part, I would say, of sports and entertainment for sure. And that makes perfect sense when you hear it broken out that way, especially how technical some of the registrations become and yeah. uh, just some of the hard work that goes into that. Um, I, I just want to ask you a little more um, specifically. So within wrestling, um, how much of the um, work that goes into the IP is the enforcement versus the registration? So it sort of, it depends, you know, um, I don't have like a clear cut answer because it's sort of just a vault. It depends on where we are. Um, I would say, you know, registration wise, obviously at the beginning when you're like formulating new concepts or creative elements and, you know, you obviously want to protect those rights in the first instance. So the registration has its own process um, at the outset. And then from an enforcement standpoint, I mean, there's definitely, there's a lot of vendors that we partner with too that, you know, sort of automate a lot of the enforcement, um, which is helpful because, you know, ultimately it, it would be a full-time job to have to go and, and sort of police your marks um, and I think the same is true of every organization, right? Um, so yeah, so it's not necessarily like a specific like time breakdown between like registration or enforcement. It sort of all happens at the same time, um, but it's really all about sort of leveraging your resources so that you can make sure you're going after um, those potential infringements that actually are, um, you know, diluting the revenue or becoming negatively, adversely impacting um, the revenue side. So. You know, it's a little bit of a judgment call, but at the end of the day, you're sort of going to take that same approach no matter what organization you're at. Wow, thank you so much for sharing that with us. I want to turn it over to the Q&A section. So Francesca Spinelli is one of our organization co-presidents. So I was just curious, um, you mentioned earlier that like kind of right now the market is becoming a little bit saturated um, for people who are interested in entering, um, the industry. And so I was just wondering if you had any advice for those of us who maybe are looking to go that route. Um, would you say that any experience is good experience or do these organizations such as, um, the JAGs or any type of entertainment industry, do they prefer in-house council experience prior to? Sure. So it sort of depends. Um, for me, I just had an unconventional path, right? I never worked at a law firm. Most people though that you talk to, most lawyers, um, people in this industry will tell you like, oh, you should really go to a law firm right out of law school, you know, put in your hours and then you can always pivot in-house later on. I mean, that that is fair enough. But for me, like I, I didn't need to take that path and it just, it wasn't in, in the cards for me, which is totally fine. Um, so I would say a couple of things. First, just keep your options open, right? 
if you really want to just go in-house, try to make those relationships early on. Reach out to people on LinkedIn, like LinkedIn is your friend. So make sure you're sending messages to folks who are in GC roles. Everyone is most, mostly everyone is going to be open and receptive to scheduling 10 minutes to have a chat with you or let you pick their brain or whatever. So, you know, try to build the relationships early on because you never know, you know, who you'll, you'll um, form a bond with. And then when, whenever they have a hiring need, um, they'll think of you, right? You'll be top of mind. So relationships are key, networking, right? You guys hear about it all the time. Um, just make sure that you're, you're sort of staying active on that regard. Um, there's a couple of other re like actual resources that you can use. So like if you want to go in-house, Association of Corporate Counsel is one organization. Um, they have a sports and entertainment network, which I'm a part of. Um, they hold monthly calls, different sort of virtual happy hours um, and networking events. So that could be another good option. And they have an annual conference. The Sports Lawyers Association, which I'm sure you guys have heard of, um, same thing. They have their annual conference. There's a heavy, heavy team and league presence through SLA. Um, so again, just sort of using it as another networking opportunity. Um, and then in terms of your actual job search, similar to what I was saying earlier, you know, just sort of keep an open mind, figure out what it is, you know, that interests you, where you can add value. And then even if it's not your dream job right away or not your um, ideal internship, you can still, you know, take advantage and absorb everything from that experience, right? So you can still Take, take on that role. And then once you are done with that internship, think about how it will translate to an in-house role, right? And, and position yourself having that competitive advantage and, and why you can add value um, down the road. So it's, you know, I, I think it's a little bit, it's obviously the networking piece and the relationship building is huge. The other thing is just don't get so caught up in, oh my gosh, I have to go straight in-house or I have to have this particular internship because you'll be fine. You'll be able to sort of make your experience translate or relatable to the in-house space as a generalist. Great. Thank you so much. And next up, we have a question from Corey Grable. Hi, Cassie. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak with us. Um, I have a question about kind of balancing for you personally, the legal duty that you owe to the Jaguars and balancing that against kind of just being a football fan and rooting for the team. Is that hard? Yeah. Is that something you struggle with? You know, that's a great question. Um, and I don't think anyone's actually ever asked me that before. So I grew up, I actually grew up a huge baseball fan. I was um, a giant Mets fan. Um, my brother also played baseball in college. And so I, when I first got that Angels job, I was like, oh my God, this is the dream job, right? Like I'm in the MLB. Um, even though I never really rooted for the Angels, I was kind of like, all right, I guess now I'm an Angels fan, right? So it's funny working in sports, your allegiance kind of shifts depending on, you know, where your paycheck is coming from. Uh, but no, at the end of the day, I think it's, you know, it's funny because I love football. I love sports in general. Um, so there's still that little bit of like excitement. Like once you actually are out on the field and it's like your first home opener and it's the first game of the season and you can see all of your hard work from behind the scenes coming together um in real time like that's what it's all about right it's about like making those memories making those experiences for our fans that's really why you're in sports you know and so for me i never really had that whole oh i'm gonna get starstruck or this or whatever you have those moments along the way but once you're deeply rooted into the industry and this is your career and your job you sort of your perspective changes a little bit um just in terms of how you approach it so I always tell people too, like once you work in sports, even if you're just interning and you work for a team, 
you will never go to a sporting event the same way again. You know, like you're not just tailgating and going and being a fan and cheering. Now you're sitting in the stands and you're looking at the scoreboards and you're looking at the activations in the stadium and you're looking at who the partners are and you're looking at, you know, what the football operations look like on the field and it, are we compliant and all those sorts of things. So it really does change your perspective in that sense. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Great. Next up, we have a question from Dylan Grayson. Yeah, so it really interested me to hear that you guys were hypothetically allowed to have 100% capacity at NFL events and uh, dynamite tapings. So what went into the decision making to have lower capacity? Because I know you guys have been working at a lower capacity. Yeah, so with the on the NFL side, um, obviously the, the league is involved, right, in terms of making those decisions and making sure that things are equitable and safe for all of our fans. Um, regardless of sort of what jurisdiction you're in. And so from very early on, I think we ended up going with the 25% capacity. At the time, I think, I, and I can't remember because there were so many like executive orders that came down from our governor and our local um, city, our mayor, um, like through that period of time where it was like safer at home orders and, and then the mask orders and whatnot. So, you know, ultimately that was the decision that was made prior to the season was the 25%. Um, I think we were one of the first teams as well to have fans in the stadium um, for our games. And it just worked, right? Like everything, everything worked. The processes were working, our testing protocols and everything were, you know, obviously you tweak things along the way, but overall it was successful. So we stuck with that. Um, and then also just because our Daly's Place is adjacent to our NFL facility, it sort of made the most sense to, you know, sort of just transfer some of those decisions or processes over to um, the arena or the amphitheater. And so that's sort of how we started with wrestling. Now we, I think we have up the capacity quite a little bit. And that's just, again, sort of seeing what the trends have been over the past couple of months, seeing, you know, how, how things are, are working, what are um, the repercussions are, all of that stuff. We take all that into consideration. And I would say by no means like this, these decisions are not set in stone, right? So like they're fluid, like we are adapting our policies as we go, as we learn more information, obviously with the vaccine rollout, things are going to change a little bit, but it's just, it's one of those things where it's a moving target. And so we have to sort of just be monitoring things on an ongoing basis before we sort of adapt our policy. On that note, um, I think we are going to wrap up for the session. Uh, Cassie, we just want to thank you again one more time for taking the time to uh, speak with us this morning. Um, of course, we know your schedule is very busy, and so we really appreciate your time. Of course, it was great. Thank you guys for having me so much. And I'm on LinkedIn, so if any of you guys ever want to connect or touch base or just have a chat, let me know. Shoot me a message. I'm happy to connect. What an amazing conversation. On behalf of the entire Sports and Entertainment Law Society and the podcast committee, um, and in particular the hosting uh, panel for the day, I just want to give one final thank you to Cassie for speaking for our organization today. Um, from the subject matter being as interesting as it is, pro wrestling, pro football, the NFL, just such incredible topics. Um, and to hear about what a dynamic job working in-house in these organizations is and just how on your feet and uh, what a jack of all trades you really have to be to excel in that role is just so insightful. And hearing your perspectives on looking for jobs in these industries and professional sports um, it is just incredible to hear at this stage for all of us. So once again, thank you to Cassie McBride for being the first guest on this program. 
Rush Sports and Entertainment Law Stories is presented by the Drexel University Thomas R. Klein School of Law Sports and Entertainment Law Society. The organization is led by co-presidents Francesca Spinelli and David Samuel, Treasurer Ainsley Rhodes, and Secretary Louis Sorokin. This program would not be possible without the efforts of our podcast committee led by Louis Sorokin, alongside Vinny Simhadri, Ainsley Rhodes, Kevin Gilligan, Sean Morales, Karina Braun, Emily Palladinetti, David Samuel, and Francesca Spinelli. This episode was recorded with the express consent of the speaker and adapted from its original Zoom webinar version for publication with production by Louis Sorokin. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Drexel S-E-L-S to stay up to date and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.